when we're more connected to our bodies, it shows up in our DEI work. It shows up in how we lead. We are more expressive. We can better communicate our needs and our values. We have the ability to have deeper relationships. And also, we're able to create these deeper DEI strategies that address the harms that DEI was aimed to address in the first place. When we forget that we are whole human beings with a body, how can we build a future for all human beings to thrive? You're listening to A Recipe for Transformation with Krista Wilson, a podcast that helps build unique recipes to translate dignity and caring into equitable, inclusive, and anti-racist behaviors in the workplace, helping you transform them into ones that create an environment that fosters dignity, humanity, and respect for all your employees. Because leading transformations that stick require more than just knowing the words. It's about understanding why we are doing what we do and putting people first. I want you to imagine that you went to a dinner party, like an actual dinner party that your friends were hosting. Based on how you're welcomed by that host, if they've asked you about your dietary needs before you got there, or your interests, or if you were greeted by the other people at the party, how the other guests greeted and talked to you or didn't, the overall experience that you had at that dinner, how you felt in community with those other people, if a handshake you offered went unreturned, or if a warm story that you shared was returned with the story from another person. Based on what you experienced at that dinner party, you will know if you felt like you were included. You would feel as if you belonged. And if you felt like you were rejected, you would feel that in your body. And by the end of that dinner, you would know if you wanted to come back to eat and be with that group, not because of a series of thoughts in your head, but you would feel it in your body. And it wouldn't matter what that host said in the email or the text invitation to make you feel like you were welcomed. It wouldn't have mattered what the group email said or the group agreements on the beautiful tent card when you got there. You would know what you felt in your body. If I took this away from a dinner party and I told you about my fifth grade friend, Amanda, she was one of the first people I met when I moved from Atlanta to Jacksonville, Florida, and we became fast best friends. And I remember the excitement that we had planning her 10th birthday party, so much so that we talked about the details for weeks. And then one day, on the walk home from the bus stop to our houses, she told the group that she'd catch up with them, and then she hung back to talk to me one-on-one. And she first confirmed that I knew we were still best friends. And when I heard that, I felt it first. This feeling of 
some discomfort or something scary or bad was coming. I could feel it first. And then the thought came, why would she ask me if I knew that we were still best friends? Why still? And then she said that her dad told her that inwards, and you know the inward, were not allowed to come to her birthday party. And so I wasn't going to be able to come. And so before my brain processed all of those words, I felt it. I felt the energy coming out of her words, her discomfort, maybe fear. I felt in my stomach getting tight. I felt the energy sensations of my body of sadness and fear, maybe anger, maybe disappointment. And then I could feel almost cotton balls in my throat and a tightness because I didn't know what to say. I'd grown up around racism my entire childhood with Confederate flags being flown above homes and sometimes even city halls. And I had grown up with stories of my family and my parents about being raised in legalized segregation. But I think this was one of the sharpest stories and memories I have about firsthand being denied inclusion because of my skin color. The body felt the need for inclusion. My body felt this deep inequity before I had the words. And yet, when I read traditional DEI books, when I've gone to diversity, equity, and inclusion trainings, and in fact, when I'm in most DEI spaces, either in the physical world or online, we aren't talking about the body. And in fact, in some spaces, it's considered too woo. And y'all know what I mean by woo. It's considered too woo for their taste. I had to get my learning about embodiment, being in the body, how all of this work shows up and is expressed through the body from other places. And I think that these two worlds must intersect. This is why embodiment, being in the body, recognizing the body's role in this realm of diversity, equity, and inclusion is so important to me, even though it's often missed by other consultants and coaches and organizations who are leading DEI. Now, you may have heard this term embodiment called many things like somatics or cultural somatics, or somatic abolitionism. But if you've worked with me and you maybe have heard of my work, I am very much about not using jargon. So let me first talk about what is it? What do these words mean about being in the body? So there are two ways I want to define this for you. So first, very simply, I would say that somatics is really a way that we can connect to our bodies and our mind, that we have a body and a mind, and there's places to get information and knowledge and connection from both of those places. The second thing that I might say is that somatics, when we apply it to diversity, equity, and inclusion, it is a practice of humans, people like you and me, coming together, being fully in our bodies, And we are honoring and respecting each other 
and our bodies, especially when our bodies look different from one another, where there is a deep honoring of our humanity and our human bodies. I want to share with you why this matters to me and my invitation for why this should matter to you. First, because like this dinner party example that I mentioned, when we experience an identity-based harm, like an ism, sexism, racism, a a bias because we're trans or her gender expansive, we experience it as a feeling first. Not just a thought, we feel it in the body. That drop in the gut, that surge of anxiety, we feel it in the body first, not as a thought. The second is that when we practice this embodiment work, whether we call it somatics or somatic abolitionism or just being mindful of our bodies, we are inviting the body's knowledge as a way to tap into this wealth of knowledge. And we also are inviting in healing. And that's why it should be a key element of why and how we're doing DEI in the first place. You know, even in my own consulting framework, which is essentially how do I lead clients through diversity, equity, inclusion, I have a framework where I say we do first some dreaming work, figure out where we're going and what we need to do and who we need to become to do this work. Then there's a discovery phase where we dig into a diagnostic of what needs to happen, how do we tend to the roots of the of the core issues. And there's another phase, which is about healing and moving into action. But we cannot do DEI work if we don't look at healing. Because then we're just building DEI strategies, as I tell my clients, on top of the bones. So this healing part, though, is often missed by many of the DEI consultants that I personally know who are friends, because they don't want to go there. To me, it's so critical because of what I've said so far, many of us who have an identity that's been historically marginalized or undervalued, we're holding this in the body. And so we can't separate that. The body knows. So I think what I want to first offer is this thing I mentioned about dreaming. Why that's so important to me about DEI work in the first place. It's this question that's so central. Why are we doing DEI in the first place? Like, this is a great place to start. To me, we're doing diversity, equity, and inclusion because we're trying to create a future where there is diversity, right? And it's honored. My teacher, Norma, has this concept that comes from deep Buddhist principles, and it's called all under heaven intact. And essentially what it means is that all of us We're good. We're whole. We're not broken in pieces. So there's diversity and we're all here. The second reason that we're doing DEI is that whatever the inequities we used to experience, they're gone. And whatever policies or practices or strategies that were creating the inequities, they also don't exist. And then for the inclusion part, well, That's simple. We don't just want to include all of this beautiful diversity in the world into a toxic, exclusive place, but we want to create something new where inclusion was designed at the start. But here's the thing. We can't do that 
with traditional DEI tactics of a two-hour training or a brown bag conversation or attending an annual DEI conference and think that we've got it. Not unless we were doing that and a bunch of other stuff and also engaging and talking about the body. And really, I would say in the last three years, I've gotten so much deeper in my knowledge around this. And that was luckily with some friends who helped me build a community of practice to understand the importance of bringing in my whole self, not just my emotional inner self, but the body as the self. You know, our teacher, Norma Wong, comes from movement strategy, Native Hawaiian movements, and she teaches that if we're building social movements, we also must move and engage the body. I'm so thankful for my collaborators, Liz and Mari, who brought me into that world. But also my colleagues like Erin, who's taught me and, and introduced me to um, Resma Meghem's work. And you all may know him. He wrote My Grandmother's Hands and The Quaking of America and has been leading around somatic abolitionism, teaching us about not only to be mindful of the body, but how is the body holding these racialized harms and how do we process them out? We're not talking about that in our DEI work. I believe that we have to engage the body because this is the first place we get data about the racialized and other identity-based harms that we're experiencing. I remember back in 2018, I was getting a lot of calls, and even up into 2020 and 2021, many, many calls for microaggression 101 trainings. This word was really a big buzzword, and people wanted training on what it was and how to identify it. And so I remember when I got trained on it, because it was the word was new to me, not the experience. So the way that I was trained to then deliver the training, it was too cerebral, right? I could teach you what is a microaggression, a micro insult. Dr. Sue has done a beautiful work to explain it. But what I realized is that I didn't just need to define it. Because a microaggression is an experience. It's a feeling. People in my workshops and training, they needed to understand that it's a feeling and they needed to feel it too, or at least have a visceral experience to make it real. So that it was a, it was a somatic experience, not just cerebral. And this is backed up not just from, you know, the somatic teaching world. This is also backed up from decades long business change management best practices. In the book, Heart of Change, what Cohen and his partners learned from studying organizational change management, they found that if we want to lead transformations that are going to last inside of our organizations, like a culture change, like DEI, we have to help people see the issues, but then we have to help them feel the issues before they will do something about it. They call it the see, feel, do framework. And if you think about that, feel is not in the brain. We feel in our bodies. It is in the body. So in this business book from decades ago, they're not talking about somatics and that the heart of organizational change is somatics. But essentially, that is exactly what they're saying in this book, that we have to get in the body. Do you feel like you're getting some amazing pearls of wisdom on this episode? At Wilson & Associates, our mission is to help folks like you promote dignity and care at work 
to transform workplaces into ones that are equitable, inclusive, and anti-racist. We believe that it's more than knowing the catchphrases. This transformation requires understanding why we are doing what we do, doing it with integrity, and centering our humanity and joy along the way. This podcast is just one of the many ways we feed our mission. At Wilson & Associates, we help our partners create fun, supportive, and innovative spaces where our collective humanity is nurtured, our imagination is sparked, and we co-create recipes for advancing racial justice and equity. We know there's a well of information on DEI out there, and it can be a little overwhelming, but it doesn't have to be. The simplicity lies in creating your own recipe for transformation. We aim to put humanity and dignity back into DEI and our workplaces so that we can create environments where each of us can thrive. So head over to our website at wilson-and-associates.com to find out more about how we can help you and your organization. You can take our self-assessment that can help you explore the different dimensions of DEI in your own organization and determine the best starting point to find your own recipe for transformation at deidiagnostic.com. You can find all our links in the show notes. And let's transform the face of DEI into the face of dignity, together. When we experience microaggression and active bias or discrimination or bigotry because of our identity, we do feel that in the body. Here's what happens. There's something that happens, a comment, an action, a slight, a disregard. And then the recipient knows something didn't feel good. We can say that didn't feel good. And then we will say to ourselves, "Um, okay, let me start to analyze that. Um, what did, what was that? Um, did they mean that? Uh, was that a, was that a microaggression? Was that a, did they misspeak? We'll start to analyze and try to interpret the action. But what's undebatable is that it happened in the body first. We felt it in the body first. When I'm doing client engagements, coaching and training, clients will ask me always, okay, Krista, This thing happened to me, but I'm not sure if it was homophobic. And then they're asking me to tell them and to validate if what they experienced was homophobic or if it was racist or if it was ageist. And I can't do that because I'm not in their body. But what I can say is, well, how did it make you feel? Because this is the thing. This is the thing about somatics and diversity, equity, and inclusion. At the end, at the end of all of these tactics and strategies and programs and initiatives and investments, we want to be in spaces where our bodies feel honored by others. And we don't want to have these negative feelings in the pit of our stomachs that make us feel devalued. This is why even acknowledging the body and the conversations that I hope that this episode will elicit it said there's a couple of things. And it really was in 2017 when I went to a learning community that it really, the light bulb went off. One of our teachers and, and, and colleague, uh, my friend Sangeeta actually said this so beautifully. And she said that our culture has taught us to be a head without a body. And I think Zoom has exacerbated that 
Microsoft Teams, all of that, where we see each other in that little square on the computer. But what this has done is it's taught us to bypass and ignore the body. I talked about this in episode two, where we're ignoring our body signals to eat, to use the bathroom, to stretch, these basic human functions that we're ignoring because we're taught to bypass that. We're also taught to bypass our emotions too. Things don't feel good, but we'll do it anyway because we have a deadline or we're too busy. Other people have needs that we put above our own. We bypass what our body's telling us to do. I have a client and they thought they had some kind of stomach issue, maybe gastritis. When it turned out that the source of their stomach issues was the racial tension and the passive aggression on her team that was so bad that her stomach would start to act up about 20 minutes before her team meeting started. And the team meeting started just after lunch. But she was so disconnected from her body that she didn't start to put the pieces together. I'm eating lunch, then I have a little bit of a break, and now I'm having severe stomach issues, and then I'm going to my team meeting. But wait a minute. When I eat at home and I eat on the weekends, I don't have this disorder. This is why it's so critical for us to be mindful of what's happening in the body. This idea that we are just a head floating around, detached from a body, it really comes from colonization. Colonization spread this myth that the greatest information, the greatest value of who we are comes from our brains. What do you think? Instead of how do you feel? And there's so much information that can come from the body when we put value on that question, how do you feel? When we forget that we are whole human beings with a body, How can we build a future for all human beings to thrive? And when we add on this cultural disconnection from the body plus grind culture that doesn't give us time to pause, to check in with our bodies until maybe it's too late, this is a real recipe for the kind of dis-ease, burnout, mental health crisis that I talked about in episode two and that I believe led the Surgeon General to create that framework for well-being in the workplace because it's really at a crisis level. And I don't say that lightly. I think for, for me, and I say this because it just matters so much to me that we are taking better care of ourselves. I could do an entire season, I think, on embodiment in the body because there's just so much to say. There's so much that I feel and there's so much that I want you to know and to be able to do to take care of your body, to tap into your body for its wisdom. As we're doing diversity, equity, inclusion, to think about how are we honoring our bodies as we do this work that's supposed to be also about honoring our bodies. I mean, this really could be an entire season. This is why in the DEI dinner party, my virtual learning community for those leading DEI, I've designed the whole learning structure 
built on five learning and practice elements. And one of them is somatics and embodiment. Because I know that we need more runway to learn about this stuff, to have an intentional place to practice, to explore, and to do it in community. Also with guest teachers and experts. I say this all the time. I am a student as well. There's so much more that I have to learn just at the same time that I'm teaching others. But let me say this too. Here's what I can offer because I do want everyone who's listening to this to be able to have some really key takeaways to begin your own somatic exploration. So there's two things I want to offer you. The first is how can you connect to your body as you're leading diversity, equity, and inclusion work or also just connecting to it because it's important that we're whole people connected to our body. And the second thing I can offer is what are the benefits if we build embodiment into our DEI? Because for many of us, we do have to make the case for all of the things that we are advocating gets added to DEI. So here's the first thing. How do we connect to the body? I think the first thing I want to offer you is that, well, For many people, it can be very difficult to access and connect to the body. And and that has to do with there could be trauma that people are holding. And so they can't access the words or information or be able to feel. I have had clients that say they just feel numb because of the pandemic, because of violence that's happened in their own community or in the country. And so I think we want to also invite people to start small. And so it can be asking the simple question of, how does that feel? As opposed to the question that we always ask, what do you think? The second thing that I want to offer of what you can do to help you and others connect to the body is by simply giving us permission to do so. For some of our cultures, we have been taught that our body is not ours. I'm thinking specifically of women and women-identified people for those in Black bodies and Indigenous bodies, that our bodies have not always been solely ours. We haven't had control over our bodies to be able to always feel. So permission to do that goes a long way. The third way that we can connect to our bodies is that we need tools to be able to download the information from our bodies, to check in with our bodies, And there's a number of ways that we can do that. The first is to journal. And that can simply be taking out paper and writing words, coloring pictures, writing down images that we see. These tools in journaling I have found have been very helpful. And it's also to release the idea of perfectionism, that at the end of the journal, you have the perfect words. Sometimes it's just about getting it out. And a tip that I learned long ago is write it like you're telling a story to a friend. I'll be teaching an embodied method for sensory scribing and journaling in the DEI dinner party. But the gist of this is that as you are telling the story to your journal, you're tapping into different parts of where the body might be holding knowledge. And this includes emotions and feelings and images. And I want to credit a teacher who taught me a similar method that he created. This is Resba Minikim with his soul scribing method. 
Another way to do this is by movement. So adding breath or stretch to either a meeting or to your own private time. I know Michael, my breathwork teacher, who's taught me many things, Norma with her stretch practices in Tai Chi, have really helped me connect to the body to see where I might have tightness. It's also helpful to have a movement practice in your meetings and in community. That could look like starting your meetings with a stretch, truly. Or if you've been sitting in your meeting already for an hour and a half, pausing to add movement there. Or if you're having a brainstorm with a team and the ideas have dwindled and now there's silence, pause and ask questions like, if your hips could talk, which sounds silly, but it gets people kind of in a creative space, try it. Believe me, it's very fun and people will give you some ideas. I can also offer building a movement and somatics community. It takes a while to build a new habit. But if you have people who are also in the same practice with you, it helps. This is what's going to happen in the DEI dinner party where we'll have check-ins. Did you move your body today? How did you check in with your body today? This is so important. And the next is having peer circles where you can talk to each other in a judgment-free space. The last thing I want to offer here, what are the benefits if we do this? There's plenty of practices, but what are the benefits if we are more connected to our bodies as opposed to just one more thing that another coach is asking you to do? Well, here's the thing. There's information that's in our body for sure. And sometimes that information comes in the shape of a trauma or a harm. And so moving the body is a tool that helps us metabolize it all out. So it can be a fuel to us as opposed to something that can burn us up. What we know is this. When we're more connected to our bodies, it shows up in our DEI work. It shows up in how we lead. We are more expressive. We can better communicate our needs and our values. We have the ability to have deeper relationships We have more access to self-soothe and to have real, authentic self-care that is more effective than candle lighting and aromatherapy. We also have the access to community care when we build these communities of practice. And also, we're able to create these deeper DEI strategies that address the harms that DEI was aimed to address in the first place. I have to say that when I think about the power of being connected to our bodies, it goes back to something that I heard years ago that never left me. It's that we can't think our way to equity and inclusion. We have to move to action. And we can't move unless we are fully in our body. Creating unique recipes for how people can experience dignity and also thrive at work is a mission that involves and requires all of us. If you felt moved to take action through this episode, I hope you'll subscribe, leave a review, and share this podcast 
with the people that you know are going to benefit from it. The more dignity and respect that we can build into the workplace, the more we can create the kinds of environments that foster and celebrate our humanity. In this episode, we spoke a little about my new membership, the DEI Dinner Party. The DEI Dinner Party is for people who are leading diversity, equity, inclusion, well-being, and culture change inside of their organizations. It's for people who are looking for support, strategies, tools, and resources to help them be successful as they work toward building workplaces where people can thrive. By joining this membership community, you'll be able to build the skills to lead, to sustain your DEI efforts, to save money on DEI trainings and initiatives by getting exactly what you need all in one place, and that conserves energy. And you're gonna have access to a joy-centered community of peers that can assist you in your DEI goals. To find out more, go to recipefortransformation.com slash DEI dinner party. The link is also available in our show notes. Here's the thing, you can't sustain DEI in your organization if you aren't sustained. And the best way to do that is by building communities and places where you are supported and not alone. So I want you to join me and join the DEI dinner party and a community of leaders just like you to amplify your leadership and join forces to change the world.